All right. Good morning. Um, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, every Sunday uh, for the last few months, but we're going to take a pause uh, here for this season of Advent. And, um, uh, well, take a look at, the, at what happened, the events uh, when Jesus was, was born uh, to, to uh, Mary and to Joseph. And taking a pause, having a little disruption is actually a nice way to think about Advent because it was absolutely a disruption to Mary and Joseph, right? Their expectation of life, they were a young couple, just, you know, bound to one another, pledged to one another, thinking life was going to be ordinary, uh, maybe routine, good, safe life. And then in an instant, Mary gets this message. You're pregnant already. Surprise. It's from the Holy Spirit. Tell your husband and everything's going to be great. And her life was just turned upside down. Um, and then the disruption came to Joseph, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, and they realized that their lives were not going to be ordinary, but extraordinary. Still sometimes routine, um, definitely not safe, um, but ultimately something that God used to bring glory um, to, to the world. Um, so you can flip back in your Bibles if you have them, or scroll up uh, from Matthew 6, where we've been, uh, to Matthew 1, um, where we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus uh, for a moment. But first, uh, let's God, help us all this morning to slow down, to be humble, to listen to your word, to listen to um, your spirit, to the thoughts that may come into our mind as, as there are things that you want us to know, things you want to reveal to us, things you want us to do. I'm just a little tiny piece of this. Um, I pray for your help to be true to what your word says, to be humble, to be simple, and uh, we look to you for help this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Also, I just realized it's Sunday after Thanksgiving. I should introduce myself because we have visitors. My name is Jomo Thompson. I'm one of the um, elders on session right now. I preach from, I don't know, holidays for some reason uh, has become my, my thing. Um, so, uh, but yes, so uh, we're glad you're here. And... Um, Hope that Thanksgiving was, was a wonderful uh, time for you with family. Um, so we're going to start in Matthew 1, uh, verse 1, genealogy of Jesus. Don't, don't worry, we're not going to do the whole thing. Uh, but what well, we're going to look at the first part, um, being in Matthew 1, 1, this is, uh, it says, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So this opening group of people have a lot of names that you've heard before and also pauses from time to time to note not just the father but the mother or some brothers who were involved and we don't have time to look at all those stories truly it's entire books of the bible dedicated to the lives of those men and women um, but just note that whenever it mentions someone other than the father and the son like something happened that 
was special. Usually not great, um, but something was going on. And if you were to kind of look at all those lives, you would see men, generally, who were very concerned about having a male heir. That was a big deal in the ancient world. Big deal still in many cultures today. Big deal to Jewish men. Who is my son going to be? What will my son inherit from me to carry on my name in this great kingdom of God that we're a part of? And so Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham, the founder of the nation of Israel, and also the first man in Israel to get become consumed with, who is my son going to be? And it continued on from Abraham to Jacob. That's a fascinating story of selfishness and, and some conniving, some scheming to try and move up in God's kingdom. Uh, it passed on to Jacob's sons, Judah and his brothers, who were um, selfish, who, who, who schemed against one another. Uh, at one point, um, conspired to kill one of their brothers, Joseph, to move up because Joseph was their father's favorite. There's the mention of Tamar, which is an awful, awful sad story of just how selfish Judah was to try and keep his family line intact and how God restored that family line through his work, not through Judah's scheming. And then we have this one like shining light of selflessness in the midst of this genealogy in these two people, Ruth and Boaz, which is a great book. If you're ever like reading the Old Testament and depressed about how awful everything was, just put your bookmark wherever you are, flip over to Ruth and read this wonderful story of two selfless people who were there for one another, there for those in need. And Boaz did something quite special, relevant to today's topic, which is that he was willing to marry a widow, which had an effect, not to get too much into the legal weeds of it, but would have an effect on the inheritance that he could pass down to his own sons. And again, I'm not an expert, not going to try to be, but Boaz was this special moment, this Boaz and Ruth, this time of like not being so concerned with who his son was going to be or how the lineage was going to play out. And this first group set the stage for why Mary's pregnancy would have been so hard for Joseph. So let's jump down a bit to verse 18, uh, still in, in Matthew's gospel, and we pick up with birth of Jesus, per Matthew's sort of abridged version. Um, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as, as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until, there, uh, until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we meet Joseph at the end of this 
long line of men who had been concerned, maybe even consumed with who is my son going to be? And the very first thing you learn about Joseph is that Jesus was not his son. That he had been not struck a blow, but struck a blow. This would have been personal to Joseph. Hard to hear. What do you mean, Mary, that's not going to be my son? And then a vision from God comes to tell him, go ahead, go through with that. Joseph's initial reaction prior to the angel's arrival was to be kind, good, you know, he, he knew the law. He, he knew this isn't right. I shouldn't marry this woman. This isn't my child. I'm not going to go through with this. But he wasn't cruel. He wasn't vindictive. He's like, you know, I'll, I'll do it quietly. I'll just kind of send her away, and who knows what will happen to her. Not my problem, not my kid. <laughs> but I will sort of, he was going to go on his own path. He was going to find someone else probably someday, somewhere, and not have to worry about this woman and her child who came from wherever. And then he had this dream. And in this dream, the angel tells him, nope, you're doing this. You're pledged to be married to Mary. Take this child, raise him as your own. And so I wanted to just hit here, and we have up on the screen, um, sort of Joseph's waypoints. We are Waypoint Church. Recently changed our name to Waypoint Church. And a waypoint is, among other things, a... uh, a, 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 an outpost, a guide to let you know when you're on a journey, which way should I go? You know, it's a place to rest. It's a place to be like, oh, yep, over there, that's the waypoint I'm going to. Um, and so as Joseph went through this ordeal, God gave him some, some ways to go. And it started out with just kind of God's basic law, you know, uh, which would have led him not to marry Mary. Uh, and this kind of little waypoint of his conscience, which was like, don't be cruel. Um, but then he receives a calling, a divine revelation, a dream, like flip to the, you know, the encyclopedia to divine revelation, and he has an angel speaking to him in a dream, uh, telling him God's will. And then, to be commended, he puts that, dream, the, that, that um, calling into practice. He takes Mary as his wife, as he was told, names the child Jesus, as he was told. And then if, you were, if we were to skip on into Matthew 2, you would see he actually does this two more times. He has another dream. Angel appears to him and says, leave, go to Egypt. And then a few years later, when it's safe, leave Egypt, come back to Nazareth. And each time he had the dream and then he did it. It's kind of Joseph's pattern of following God uh, in these early um, times was have a dream, do what it says. And that's kind of it. Um, if, you, if we cross-reference it with, with Luke's gospel, we get just a little bit more about Joseph. Basically, he was a good Jewish man who raised his family the way a good Jewish man should raise his family. Um, and so what you could say about Joseph, we would summarize him, would be that you know, he received and, get, and did God's will, even though it was difficult. And that's great. That's, that's to be commended. Uh, but this is Advent, where we celebrate not Joseph, but Jesus. Uh, where we celebrate that God came and was with us through Jesus um, and is with us through Jesus and that God brought through Jesus the salvation of sins, as the angel said to Joseph, and that Jesus was and remains God's like greatest revelation to us. And so 
in looking at Joseph's life and thinking about Jesus' revelation, Jesus coming to us and God, the way that God reveals himself to us, I wanted to take just a little time, not to leave Joseph, not to go off on a completely different adventure, but to talk a little bit about how God reveals himself, how he revealed himself to Joseph, what we can learn from that, how we can put it into practice in our own lives. Um, and that'll be it. So, uh, first sort of major way to note that God has revealed himself to his people through the, time, uh, through the ages is divine revelation, which is not always comfortable to talk about because divine revelation is really scary for a host of reasons. Like, if you have a divine revelation, if God tells you to do something, well, then you have to do it, right? Like, if God actually convinces you this is what you must do, you must do that. The other side of divine revelation that's kind of scary is what if I open myself up to hear some amazing moment from God and I get nothing? Does it mean there's something wrong with me? Does it mean there's something wrong with God? Um, And then just sort of the nature of divine revelation throughout Scripture is kind of bizarre. You know, it's, it's, it's angels in dreams or, you know, burning bushes or clouds opening and visions plopping down. And, you know, if... If we had an experience like that, if you've had an experience like that, it, it's hard to imagine like even what, what to do. What do you do with that? And you see actually in the Bible, often people who have revelations are confused at first. They're like, what was that? What do I make of that? Um, and, you know, I think, again, most people are uncomfortable with the idea of a divine revelation. Most people in the world today, maybe most people here with us, here with us online, Uh, are uncomfortable with it. But I I think that one of the things that's interesting is is that throughout the Bible, in fact, I find divine revelation to be, let's say, rare. Um, We are aware of moments that it happens, starting with people like Abraham or Noah or, um, uh, well, Joseph. Um, But that most of the time, divine revelation is reserved for uh, moments when a, a person is called to do something pretty specific, and often quite difficult, like build an ark for no apparent reason, or leave your homeland for no apparent reason, or put your life on the line, or put someone else's life on the line, or marry a a pregnant woman and raise her child as your own, even though you know with scientific certainty that is not your child. Very specific calls, most of the time, for divine revelation. And then the rest of the time, people who have divine revelations are either putting it into practice or resting on and putting into practice other forms of God's revelation like his word, or mostly his word, <laughs> but also um, you know, things that have been revealed in the past, things that they know from history. Um, even Abraham, one of the sort of grand, uh, you know, the beginning of this genealogy we've looked at today, had times of revelation and then long years of no revelation. Long times when things seemed almost, well, quiet. <laughs> silence from God, where he simply had to rely on what he had been told before, stay true to that, persevere in what he had been given, and put into practice what he knew from God's law. And even in the midst of that, we know that Abraham and many others waver, even when they've had a divine revelation. And this continues on into the New Testament, uh, when people have visions. And again, the book of Acts and, 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 and the books of the Gospels are full of times when God kind of Seemingly, I should say, full of times when God kind of turns the light on really bright 
and it's absolutely clear to people what they have to do. But there is still, for most people, a process of putting that into practice. Even Paul, who had seemingly multiple revelations throughout his life, to the degree that we believe, Christians believe, that the books that he wrote are not just his words, but the actual inspiration of God writing those words down as if it was God himself doing it. So Paul had lots of revelations, um, but when you look at what Paul says about his own revelations, he was more concerned with actually that he did it than how he got it. Uh, there's at one point in, 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 in Paul's life, he needs to um, defend his, he's, he's in court, the end of Acts, he's in, he's, in, he's in court, and he's asked to defend his life. Paul, why do you do what you do? And he tells the, the judge, I'm sure the judge was thrilled, the whole story of his life from when he was a Pharisee, that he had this vision on the road, uh, and then he lost his vision, and then he was, a voice from heaven said, this is what you're going to do. And then he says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And then he goes on to say all the ways that he put into practice the vision that God had given him. Um, in another verse, which we will have on screen, Philippians 3, um, Paul is talking about a revelation that he had had, or God's will had been revealed to him. So throughout Philippians 3, Paul had been talking about basically perfect Christian maturity. And he begins again with his, his, his thought that um, you know, it was about following the law. And then he met Jesus, and he understood Jesus as the, the, the proper way to be fully mature. And this had been revealed to him. But then he says this at the end of the chapter, Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained all this, that is spiritual maturity, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straightening toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if some, at, on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what God, to what we have already attained. And I find this fascinating that Paul had been given a perfect vision of maturity and follows up immediately with, I'm not there yet. I haven't done it yet. I have seen what God wants of me, but I haven't done it. And so if you are one who have had times in your life where you're like, yes, God pulled back the curtain, the light shined, I knew exactly what God wanted, that is fantastic, and we can praise God for that, but the, 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 the calling is still upon you to put it into practice. And if you haven't, we're going to talk about that in a second. <laughs> um, but it isn't about how you got it. Yes, Joseph had these dreams that told him exactly what to do, but what I think really matters is that he woke up and did them. But for most of us, Revelation is going to come. An understanding of God's will, what does God want me to do, is going to come through the Scripture, through God's Word. Um, and I think even in the Bible, even Joseph was, as, as, as exciting as the dreams may have been, uh, the majority of his life, as near as we can tell, uh, was the result of putting into practice God's Word. And so if we were to flip and take a look at Luke 
uh, two, you get a little bit more about how Joseph raised um, uh, Jesus and his family. He says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, so this is, just to set it, kind of after everything spectacular has happened, the, the manger birth, the star in the sky, the wise men show up, the angels appear, the, the, the uh, shepherds come and praise God, everything that we have out and, you know, that you see in the nativity scene. So after all that, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Quick note, Joseph, fully engaged in his calling now, because even though he knew, not my child, he took Jesus to, be, to, re, um, to receive the consecration due the firstborn. He fully claimed Jesus as the firstborn of his family, even though he was one of the few people on the planet who knew, not my son. Um, so he was in. Uh, but he, the, the, the main point here is that he and Mary went and did just what everyone was supposed to do, what God's word told them to do. And then while they're in the temple, they, they had this other encounter with these um, uh, sort of prophets, uh, Simeon and Anna, who pray over Jesus. Uh, and, but then when all that is done, uh, verse 39, it says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. When everything that had been done required by the law of the Lord. So this is interesting, right? The, the, the birth of Jesus, Joseph's role in raising Jesus begins with a flash. You know, begins with the dream from the angel, begins with, you know, signs in the sky and, you know, complete strangers coming up and praising his child. And when all that cools off, he settles into a life of raising the child the way that the law of the Lord told you to. And as near as we can tell, that's kind of what he did the rest of his life. However long he was on the scene, we see him just one more time, a uh, little further on in Luke, where it says that simply he and Mary took their, their family to Jerusalem for the Passover feast every year. And that's it. Began huge, began with this great revelation, but then the, the length of life was simply putting God's word into practice. Uh, Paul, a verse familiar to many in his uh, letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, tells us about the life-instructing power of God's word. Paul writing said, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, and again, calling back to Philippians uh, 3, after again, he had laid out Full spiritual maturity encouraged the, the believer, his, his readers at the end, only let us live up to what we have already attained. I became a Christian about 31 and a half years ago in high school. And when I first became a Christian, it was so exciting. I felt like when I would read the word, like words would glow, it seemed. Just so exciting. New things to put into practice. All these changes that were you know, very noticeable. You know, stop swearing, stop you know, insulting people, like, and, and so there was this rush of activity, and after, I don't know, a year or so, things started to kind of cool off, and I remember I was at a retreat talking to my youth pastor, and I was like, I don't, I don't know quite what to do, like, I feel like, you know, the, the scripture's not popping like it used to, the prayer doesn't seem as, as zesty as it used to be, and he said to me, very wise, he said, well, 
when was the last time you think God told you to do something? And I told him, and he's like, well, just keep doing that. Just keep, as Paul says, living up to what you have already attained. So much of the Christian walk, so much of Christ following is faithfully putting into practice what has already been revealed, rather than looking for what's the next big flash moment, the next time that the, the words on the page are going to glow or the angel's going to walk in. That wasn't the situation, even for Joseph. Um, there was a man uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You've probably heard about him a lot recently in this church because he wrote this wonderful work on the Sermon on the Mount uh, that is a great companion piece when you're uh, studying or reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And so Pastor Shannon has mentioned him uh, a few times. Um, but he was a German minister uh, in Germany during World War II who opposed the Nazis, uh, a stance that eventually cost him his life. Um, and I read uh, over COVID his like really thick biography. Um, and what was interesting to me in it is that his life was not apparently shaped in any way through some kind of divine revelation, but simply a rigorous, logical application of God's word and a devout prayer life. Um, he was a, the son of a, a scientist. Um, his brothers, you know, that went into other fields were scientists and lawyers, and he thought you can apply that same rigor to God's word and it can guide the way for you. He wrote this um, in a letter to one of his brothers. I believe that the Bible alone is the answer to all our questions, and that we need only to ask repeatedly and a little humbly in order to receive this answer. And I bring him up because based on the strength of apparently just really, really reading and taking seriously God's word, his life went in a radical direction. Something that's interesting to me about him is that the first thing that stuck out to him about the Nazis being like bad wasn't the um, violence, not the concentration camps, not the assassinations, not the invasions of Poland and France. Um, but years before that, there was an edict put out that Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians could no longer worship together. And he and a group of others who knew the word opposed this and said, no, that is wrong. You cannot, because Germany was then a, you know, a national church, um, like, had, like the government had influence over the church, and said, so you cannot give an edict from your government that says Jewish Christians, non-Jewish Christians can't worship together. This was settled. This is in the Bible. This was, throughout the book of Acts, a problem that was, that, that was a question that was raised and answered through the, 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 the prophecy of the Holy Spirit and the prayer of the saints and the thought. And we have an answer to this question, and the answer is, don't do it. And that is the beginning, that was the beginning of Bonhoeffer's opposition to the Nazis. And it grew as they learned of the horrors that the Nazis were, were um, uh, doing. But it began with, read the scripture and notice where your life or where the life of those around you doesn't match up. And this took him all the way to giving his life for a noble, righteous cause. But again, apparently not a single cloud parting or vision descending, just, just the word. Um, the last way, talk about this morning, about God's uh, will coming to us or God revealing himself is through other people 
Maybe. Because <laughs> you want to be careful with this one. Um, you know, for example, if someone were to come to you and say, you know, hey, I have a word from God for you, and this is something that you need to do because I heard it from God and it's for you to do. That might make you a little uncomfortable, a little scared, a little skeptical. And I am happy to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, I think you should be skeptical of that. And I think the word encourages, God's word encourages us to be skeptical of those who would say to us, I have something for you to do. Um, interestingly, stick with Joseph, uh, the word of God came to Mary first. The angel visited Mary first and told her what was going on. And it could have been that Joseph would have been called to simply trust Mary. Mary's telling him, hey, angel visited me, and this is what we're going to do. And he was supposed to go along with that. But God didn't do that. God gave it to Joseph directly. Um, so even though the people around Joseph were hearing from God, um, uh, Joseph was also connecting with God in his, in his, you know, in his own way. Um, but to this idea of being skeptical, of wanting to check up on, if someone else says they have something from God for you, maybe they do, but it's good to, be, um, to, to look into that. So in Acts 17, uh, Luke was writing about a group of Jewish converts in Berea who heard Paul's message. They liked Paul's message, but they wanted to confirm Paul's message. Um, so Luke writing said, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received this mess- the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed. And as a result of what? The eagerness for Paul's message and the examination. They heard the message, and Paul, we, we know, we believe, Paul's message was true. It wasn't that he was preaching a, a wrong gospel, that what he said about Jesus wasn't true. But they weren't converted, they, weren't, they didn't become believers merely on the strength of someone else telling them, this is what God has for you. They went and they searched the scriptures themselves, rigorously, devoutly, intently. Um, so they didn't dismiss him because it was new or difficult, but they didn't just do it. Um, going back... Third time, Philippians 3, when Paul has laid out that vision of perfect spirituality uh, in Philippians 3.15, he said, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. What view of things? The view of perfect spiritual maturity that he just finished talking about. But, and if one of you think, some of you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul seemingly didn't need to defend his message to these people. Now, he's speaking here to a more mature group of people, but he wasn't just, hey, I've said it. It's true. Believe it. Because, you know, Paul, he was confident that if there was something where somebody wasn't with him, God himself would come in and give them what they needed. This isn't to say that we can't learn righteousness from what other people do or say. not trying to close the door on that. Paul encouraged people to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And in another place, he told people to imitate him as he imitated Christ. And this happened to me uh, recently. I got an email from Street Life Ministries who said they needed jeans for their um, winter clothing that they're giving out to um, men living on the streets in uh, San Mateo. And I looked in my closet and I saw uh, two pairs of jeans that I rarely use that were still in good shape. And I looked up their address, and I went on down and dropped the jeans in the um, donation basket and went home. No revelation, no checking the scriptures, no, you know, just, just my general sense that God wants me to take care of people in need and a spur, a little, a little push 
from our brothers and sisters who do it every day. It's like, I can do that. So it's a good thing if there's something that you see another person doing that rings true to you, that, oh yeah, I, I should consider that too. Maybe I should, maybe I should volunteer for Christmas Under the Stars, hypothetically. <laughs> or, <laughs> or make a donation to those, you know, to the bin that church is putting out front. Or look up what Street Life is doing, or Samaritan's House, or any of the people who are doing every day, going out there, putting God's word into practice. Yeah, you can be spurred on. You can be encouraged to do good things because of what other people do and say, but you don't need to take as absolute truth if someone else says, I have a word for you. Maybe they do. Um, but it's okay to check up on it. So, this is Advent. Emmanuel, God with us. Um, Advent, I looked it up, it's Latin, based on a Latin word, means the arrival. It's the time when we celebrate that Jesus arrived. And it is underneath all of this divine revelation, God's word, um, seen in, in you know, what other people do, the Holy Spirit, which I didn't talk about today, but preached a sermon on that last Pentecost, so you can go <laughs> listen to that. Um, God will reveal himself through his spirit as well. Joseph apparently never had a revelation from the Spirit. But people around him did. Mary did. Um, uh, but however it comes, however God's revelation comes to you, it is possible because Jesus came to us, because Jesus came in. And it's exciting. It's exciting to, to stop and pause and be disrupted and remember that Jesus came. And that it is possible for us to hear from him in some way. But I did want to hear at the end, sort of go back to Joseph's waypoints um, and look at kind of all the ways that he um, heard from God. Uh, because again, I generally tend to think of Joseph as the dreamer. That's my, my sort of mental, like, if I were taking a test, tell me one thing about this person. I'd be like, he had a dream. And he's that guy standing behind Mary in the nativity. So those are my two things. But when I looked at him again this time, I realized that, no, he was a follower of God's word. That from the very first thing you hear about him is that he thought that marriage should be done according to God's word. And then the last thing you hear about him is that he raised his kids according to God's word. He also had and put into practice his, his conscience, telling him, be kind to Mary. Don't be cruel. Yes, he received a calling for, through divine revelation. I think for the very specific thing that would have been hardest for him to do, which is accept the call to raise a child that was not his own. He continued to put God's um, word into practice, and he received encouragement from those around him. Like I mentioned, there were those who were hearing from the Holy Spirit, people like Mary who were along with him and doing this with him. And, you know, and Joseph kind of, I think, used kind of all the tools. You know? If you were to imagine um, for just a second, uh, if you were like flying in to SFO at night and... Um, the pilot came on and was like, yeah, uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot from the flight deck. I just wanted you to know we started our descent into San Francisco International Airport. Um, I've spotted one light on the runway, and I feel pretty confident that that one light is going to be enough for me to land this plane. So I've turned off all the equipment, won't be needing that. I, I saw the altimeter as I was turning it off, but we're good. Co-pilot's taking a nap, we're not going to need him. Turned off the tower, we'll be fine. I have one light on the runway, and that is going to be enough to land this plane. Maybe true. Maybe that is a great pilot, and he just needs that one light to, to hit the runway. But I'd feel a lot better if he used everything available to him to let him know how to land that plane. And when I look at Joseph, 
and really everyone involved in the story of Advent, they didn't just rely on one thing. It would be great if you could have one revelation from God that would be the one thing that you could pin your life on the rest of your life, whether it be a scripture that you read or a vision that you had or a dream, and be like, that's it. I'm going to follow that one waypoint the rest of my life, and I need nothing else. But I can't find anyone in the Bible who had a life like that. Not Abraham, not Joseph, not Paul, not Peter. None of them got by on just one revelation. They continued to receive from God again and again and again because Jesus gave again and again and again. And God gave again and again and again. And as we go out and live our our days and our weeks and our lives here trying to reflect God's glory on earth, let us receive all the tools. Turn on the equipment, talk to the tower, listen to your co-pilot, spot the running lights, and put everything into practice you can to hear from God and put his, um, his words and his calling and his deed into action. And hey, let's pray. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that you came on that evening uh, 2,000 years ago. But thank you that it didn't end there. Thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to any who seek you. Thank you that your son grew up and promised us that those who seek will find if they keep on seeking. We need your help to put this into practice, God. We need your help to live lives driven by your calling, your teaching, your guidance. So please help us uh, as we go about our, our, our days and And thank you that you came. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.